Here's the most significant Donald Trump sound this week. Other nations must step up and do their fair share that hasn't taken place. Today's breakthrough is a critical step in that direction. Thank you all very much, and God bless America. Thank you. Thank Mr. You. President, you said that the ISIS fighters who escaped have been recaptured. But today That's from this morning. Trump gave a speech about Syria and refused to take questions. Now, for any old president, this would be the norm. He doesn't want to mix a controversial foreign policy decision with what he views as a domestic attack on his presidency with impeachment. But this is not a normal president. I think that might be the one thing that unites us as a country. This is Donald Trump. He's the truffle pig president, undefeated in finding the headline and making it his own. And so unlike dozens of other topics, benign or important, with an assembled media that have nothing but questions for him, that he can do nothing but answer or berate them, he did the rarest thing that Donald Trump can do. He said nothing. This comes after testimony by Bill Taylor, his top envoy to the Ukraine yesterday on Tuesday, alleged that not only was the White House trying to squeeze an investigation out of Ukraine, they were willing and did withhold foreign aid and a White House visit to do it. And what's more, and what's more contradicting what we've previously heard, both Trump and Ukraine knew exactly what was happening. I'll be honest with you. There's only so much of the serious stuff I can follow, not because it's not important, not because I don't care about the Kurds, not because I agree with how Trump has handled it. It's just these foreign policy things will flare up periodically, and it really is inconsistent in how much we care about them at any given moment. I tuned in to that Syria availability because I wanted to hear how he defended himself. So how is he going to defend himself? Well, I got a few guesses. Trump will say that although there are diplomatic norms being bent, this is exactly why he was sent to Washington. Here is a quote from Taylor's opening statement. Before text messages during our call on September 8th, Ambassador Sondland tried to explain to me that President Trump is a businessman. When a businessman is about to sign a check to somebody who owes him something, he said the businessman asked that person to pay up before signing the check. Ambassador Volker used the same term several days later when we were together at the Yalta European Strategy Conference. In Trump language, here's how I think it'll sound. Our foreign service doesn't understand the art of the deal and our allies are taking advantage of us. I am simply trying to extract maximum value for the taxpayer dollar. 
in the example of Ukraine that had just elected a television actor because they were so disgusted by the corruption in their own country, did I point out a few places that they could look into because they have domestic implications here? Yes, I did. And I won't apologize for it. Secondly, is this something that Taylor has laid out as a quid pro quo? Yes, because he was only getting part of the story. And to be totally honest, he was not in the center of these negotiations. When you pick up the breadcrumbs from various different places, then you can put together whatever story you want. The real story is in the transcript and the transcript was perfect. Thirdly, this is how I think Trump will explain things. If this was a quid pro quo, then it's the worst shakedown in history. We gave them the money and didn't get anything. Here is a Taylor text to fellow diplomat Bill Sondland. Quote, my nightmare scenario is that the Ukrainians give the interview and then don't get the security assistance. Well, the interview that he's talking about is that Ukrainian president Zelensky would go on CNN and say that the Ukrainian government was looking in to Burisma and the Bidens. So go ahead and pull the tape on that CNN interview. Oh, wait, go ahead. Yeah, go find it. Oh, oh, wait, oh, wait, there is no CNN interview. And by the way, there is no current investigation by the Ukrainians into Burisma. Well, then certainly they must still be waiting for their foreign aid. Oh, wait, they got their security aid. So if the Ukrainians got their money and didn't give the interview, then according to Taylor's own text message, this is the opposite of a nightmare scenario. In fact, it's a dream scenario for Taylor. Which brings me to the ever-evolving circus that is the House of Representatives. The hearing that we are talking about. And let me make this 100% clear. I believe that Taylor's opening statement, forget whatever else he might have said during that hearing, because it lasted for hours. I think it's compelling. I think it's something that even people who are on the fence look at it and say, all right, well, here, if the red line on this was holding back aid for a nation that is currently at war with Russia, then no matter what the scenario is or how long the delay was, this is a problem. This is a scandal. This is something that needs to be dealt with. Even if you don't necessarily think he should be impeached or removed, it is damaging to the president. It is embarrassing to the president. And I think it was a mistake that this did not happen in public. This was a private security hearing. Should it have been in front of television cameras, then the reading of this opening statement would have been impossible to escape. The vision of a career foreign serviceman who deeply cares about Ukraine would be the sympathetic face of an impeachment push. That moment, for now, is lost. I criticized Adam Schiff yesterday. I'll criticize him again today. 
He gave a gift to the Republicans, a head start to try and figure out any way they can counter this punch or discredit Taylor. Meanwhile, in the saddest homage to the Raid Area 51 mission, Republican representatives were seen Naruto running to try and storm the hearings today. This is not a joke. Congressmen, elected congressmen, were not a member of the committee that is having these hearings, were making their way into the doors, breaching the doors, I guess proving once and for all that you can't stop us all. Were they on a mission to clap Schiff's cheeks? No. They're rallying their base with this message. Anything you hear coming out of this room is being manipulated by the Democrats and their partners in the media. Nothing matters unless you can see it with your own eyes. Is this contradictory to the uh, claim that the Democrats are holding a dog and pony show and literally just parading whoever they can out in front of the cameras for attention? Sure, doesn't matter. If you are Adam Schiff, if you are a pro-impeachment representative, or a voter, or a listener, or a human, or a person, or an alien in Air 51. I don't care. You should want this to be out in front. The horse could have been out of the barn on this. And instead, the lingering question will be, why wasn't it out in the public eye? You want to know what? Let's stick to the alien theme, huh? Here's my rallying cry for everybody involved in this entire process. If we are talking about impeaching and removing a president and you have a witness that compelling that is spilling their guts, well then, friends, show me what you got. And it is with that that I thank everyone who supports us at TakePoliticsSeriously.com because this is politics, politics, politics. Oh, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the show. It is October 23rd. Real quick, let me get this out of the way. If you are in Politicon this weekend, Nashville, Tennessee, well, I'm going to be there. Not in any kind of official capacity, although I will uh, be at the booth, the Golden Bell booth for uh, my card game, The Contender, the game of presidential debate. So... I'll sign a bunch of copies so you can buy a signed copy there. Uh, uh, and I'll be demoing it a little bit. Just follow me on Twitter at Justin R. Young. And then Saturday night, you're going to keep an eye on my Twitter account because we are going to be doing a meetup, time and date, TBD. Weren't able to nail that down in the intervening week uh, since we talked about it last week. But I will be in Nashville. We're going to be out on Saturday. I'll be hanging with Andrew Heaton. We're at least going to do a meetup, hopefully, we can also do a live show or some kind. I mean, no matter what, you're going to be listening to me and Andrew Heaton do what me and Andrew Heaton do when we're near each other. Let's talk about politics. And so that'll be a fun time. I'm very excited for it. So come out and meet us. Enough business. Let's talk about what we're going to do today. We, uh, I've, I've, I've wrestled Tom Merritt from uh, beyond my text message app and, and he's going to talk to us about Brexit. Brexit got even Brexitier. 
And there are still yet Brexit dimensions that we might have yet to explore. And so our number one Brexit correspondent goes from his uh, uh, texting roots to a full bloom here in a second. We're going to get to that. And also, at the end of this episode, I'm going to break down something that I have been fascinated by for the past, I mean, really months. It is my belief that there is one campaign that will matter. Now, by that, I don't necessarily mean the person that is most likely to get elected president of the United States, but one campaign that people who run campaigns will, when all this is said and done, go back and look at it and say, oh, God, we got to copy some of that. Politics like sports is a copycat profession. You see what works. You see what you can do with your talent and whether or not those schemes and strategies and principles would apply to how you are doing things. And so it is with that, that at the end of this episode, I will break down what I believe as an outside observer is the Yang playbook, the Andrew Yang campaign strategy. All right, but first, let's go ahead and get to our pal Tom. Take it away. Politics! You know, sometimes he has to appear from beyond the SMS app and talk to you directly. We have big Brexit news, and I'm happy that we did it today and not yesterday because... We almost we almost messed up, right? We almost messed up because just when you think that Brexit can't get any more Brexity, boy, does it always delight and surprise. Ladies and gentlemen, Tom Merritt, Daily Tech News Show, and... Our uh, you know, co-host or uh, guest host of PX3 when I was on vacation, and our Brexit correspondent. How you doing, Tom? Oh, I'm I'm doing quite well, thank you. Uh, uh, Brexit is keeping me very entertained. <laughs> okay. And I apologize. I apologize because I know if you live in the UK, you're like, it ain't funny, buddy. Uh, and I get that. Uh, but but at some point, you'll be able to look back on this and laugh the way that you laugh at us and the things that are very not funny for us right now over here. Yeah, well, you know, look, I thought you guys liked dry comedy. Um, <laughs> so let's let's kind of reset a little bit because there were things that have never happened in Brexit happened yesterday. Uh, <laughs> again. Again. It's an unprecedented use of the word unprecedented in coverage of Brexit. <laughs> so, all right. When we laugh less our, left our heroes, uh, uh, Boris Johnson, the prime minister who had uh, was one of the biggest voices for the initial uh, leave vote, uh, was was very much somebody that hard Brexiters believed would be more of a force to get people uh, to get the country out of the European Union as fast as possible, was the reason why when Theresa May left, he was the guy to do it. He swore up and down that the that the UK would be out of the EU by the spooky October 31st deadline. He goes to Brussels and gets a deal. Uh, uh, and let's let's actually start there. So 
the thing that you had always told me, because I look to you to all of my Brexit for all of my Brexit information. <laughs> thing that, uh, as you would to a person born in Illinois, look it, look to them for all of your Brexit news. Exactly. Uh, you had always said that the real tricky wicked here was the Irish backstop. That the Ir- that the Irish backstop, and effectively uh, explain what the Irish backstop is for folks who just have no idea. Yeah, I'll try to keep it short. Um, essentially, what happened to end. Uh, decades of conflict, armed conflict in Ireland, uh, because the United Kingdom holds the the, uh, eight northern counties as part of the United Kingdom and the rest of Ireland is the Republic of Ireland, uh, was called the Good Friday Agreement. And the Good Friday Agreement uh, did lots of things, among which was eliminated the border and said, look, uh, people in Northern Ireland will have UK passports, people in the rest of Ireland will have Irish passports, and both uh, can get both if they want them. People, A lot of people in Northern Ireland also have Irish passports, and we're just going to get rid of the border. You can just drive across it like you can drive from Nevada into California or Massachusetts into Connecticut. It's just, it's we're just going to get rid of it. Uh, and the EU was one of the keys to making that happen because all of these customs issues were gone. Uh, they, they could say like, well, we don't really need customs anymore here, right? Because we're all part of the EU. Well... Brexit took that little bit away. And so people were trying to re-engineer the Good Friday Agreement that sort of rested on that as one of its comforts to be like, okay, how do we keep the Good Friday Agreement and not have England or or the United Kingdom be part of the EU customs? And so the backstop basically kept most of the UK in the in the customs union until something else was figured out. It kicked the can down the road. Parliament hated that. They never voted for it. And so Boris Johnson, by being crazy enough to maybe do a hard Brexit, which would bring back that border and nobody's going to like that, will they, uh, got the EU to agree to something which is essentially a border in the Irish Sea. Uh, they're like, we'll have no border checks between Northern Ireland and the rest of Ireland. Uh, what we'll do is some goods and services, well, goods mostly, coming into Northern Ireland will uh, have to have customs checks at ports uh, and places like that if they are bound for Ireland. This is, uh, I'm sure, going to work just fine. There won't be any uh, unexpected side effects to that. Uh, but a lot of people, and now labor particularly, are saying this is essentially a customs border in the Irish Sea, saying that if you're sending something into Northern Ireland, it's going to have to pass through customs. Now, there are exceptions to that. If if you can prove that, like, no, 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 this is just going to stay in Northern Ireland, it's not going anywhere else, then, then you'd be exempt, but you'd still have to prove that, right? So it is kind of a border, even if it's not a border. Uh, and that's why the DUP the uh, the Irish party that, that that is pro-union and very solidly about keeping Northern Ireland part of the UK didn't like it because they don't want any kind of customs border there. Uh, it also uh, essentially makes the UK in part have to remain part of Europeans customs union until they can figure something out. So it's not this wonderful, satisfying, like we solved it moment. It's no. a different kind of hack on getting around this problem. But effectively, what Boris Johnson did was literally throw a border problem into the sea. Right? So, that, yeah. Yeah, that it was, you could say that. That it was not, now it's, you're not worried about any kind of checkpoint or whatever on the border, which would be a daily hassle for people, for a society that has grown over that border, over the intervening. And a dangerous hassle as people get upset very, about the border. Very dangerous and, yeah. hassle, right? Exactly, true. Uh, uh, and so... 
the bet is, at least for now, that yes, this is imperfect. Yes, this is a kludge. However, unless you are in the import-export business in a Northern Irish port, this will probably not affect your life immediately directly. Probably not. Yes. Uh, ex- you know, with a little asterisk for that notation on unexpected side effects. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, but really, the idea here is they just want out. Boris Johnson promised that he will get them out. And so that was the hack. And so Boris Johnson goes to Brussels. And by the way, this is my favorite element of this. My favorite little sideshow to all of Brexit is the European Union standing firm every time they give a deal or every time they have an extension saying there will absolutely be no more deals and no more <laughs> extensions while almost immediately granting another deal and another extension. They've, they've been less firm about the extensions. Uh, they 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 definitely were very firm about no more deals. And Boris Johnson, you know, had to, had to point the gun at himself, basically, and say, like, I'm crazy enough to do a hard uh, Brexit. And which explains a lot of Boris Johnson's behavior was I need to convince the EU that I'm just crazy enough to do it so that they will change the deal because they were very firm with Theresa May about not altering that deal and Boris Johnson to his credit got them to alter that deal and so that's where we come last Saturday because last Saturday uh, uh, this is the big news is that Boris Johnson got a deal we now know what it is he threw the Irish backstop into the sea that's still going to piss off everybody in the DUP that's still going to piss off people that just don't want Brexit at all like that are not going to support it. But, and this is something that I, and let, let's just take a meta moment here because I've paid a lot more attention to British parliamentary uh, uh, political coverage than I really ever have before. You probably spent a lot more time doing it. It's really, I mean, I'm tempted to say bad, but it is very soupy. Like there is no, I'm used to in America, if there's like, you know, when, when the healthcare vote was coming down the pike, uh, there were infographics that were like, all right, we just had everybody in our newsroom call everybody in Congress. We have this many hard yeses, this many no's, this many maybes, right? That there is like, uh, there, there is there is a, a real mechanical grinding of exactly how people are going to vote. When I was reading all this stuff about what might be the biggest parliamentary vote that I can remember in the last 10 years, which I'm defining by the fact that I care about it internationally, Everyone was like, ah, you never know. <laughs> well, and, and Brexit is unusual in that case. You you usually, uh, the party whips uh, are pretty good at peop- keeping their people in line. And just like the United States, you occasionally have your mavericks crossing the aisles, et cetera. Sure. But, uh, Brexit is unusual in that not only are the party whips not able to always keep their people in line, but MPs have left their parties during this parliament. Uh, and and said, you know what? I'm just tired of being in my party, Labour and Conservative both. Yeah. Uh, and and become independents. And Boris Johnson kicked about 20 plus people out of his party. <laughs> so so now there's there's the the whip has been removed is is the uh, technical term for that. Meaning uh, you're no longer uh, considered part of the Conservative Party. Uh, so you know vote however you want. We're we're not going to caucus with you. We're not going to do anything. These are all uh, on that long list of unprecedented things that are happening. So let's get into the rules because boy, if there's one thing 
you know, now I can understand why that country spawned Harry Potter because it is just <laughs> legislative sorcery that has gone on throughout specifically the Boris Johnson phase of this Brexit process where uh, even before this, the big scandal was that we could that the UK could not legally hard Brexit, but also and now was that Boris Johnson was forced to ask for an extension, right? Am I am I correct in both of those? those yeah, are two I mean, and we are starting to get to the limits of my understanding of okay. this too. By the way, like this, these these are crazy. And, times. and, and I, I just need touchstones on this because I want to get yeah, into yeah. what happened so, going forward. So the the big touchstones are on Saturday, Boris put the deal to a vote. Uh, now the way this works is. Uh, parliament agrees to the deal and then parliament has to pass the legislation that implements the deal, right? Yeah. There's the, Europe is offering this. Is that cool? And parliament goes, yay or nay, that's either cool or it's not. Then once they say yay or nay, they're like, okay, now we have to pass legislation on the UK side that implements that deal. Let, are you cool with this piece of legislation, this piece of legislation, et cetera? Well, the 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 mood is such, and Boris Johnson has convinced people he's crazy enough to hard Brexit enough that there was a real worry amongst MPs that if they approved the deal, that would make what was called the Ben Act, which required Boris to send a letter asking for an extension, null and void. And that because they still had to put the legislation in place, that Boris and friends could have like gone, ha ha, now we don't have to ask for an extension. Hard Brexit it is, full speed ahead. Yeah. So because they didn't trust him not to do that, they uh, this this MP called Letwin added the Letwin amendment, which said, OK, we'll approve your deal, but it won't be considered approved until all the legislation is passed. And so at that point, Boris Johnson just said, well, forget it on this was on Saturday. Yeah, uh, we'll start over next week. Uh, and so the Letwin amendment passed. And and so the deal never got approved now. Fast forward to this week where they put the deal in front of parliament uh, and parliament said, yes, we would love this deal. Sounds great. Then Boris Johnson now, said, here, great. Pause, pause, pause here. Pause here. Yes. Now, the coverage I saw coming out of this was that this was a vote that Theresa May could never get. She that, never got Parliament to agree to the deal she yeah. had. So this she was never got Parliament to win to that. Everyone assumed if she got Parliament to agree to the deal that the legislation implementation would happen because these votes were usually far enough in advance of the deadline that it really wasn't an issue. And so it was the best of times. Boris Johnson <laughs> does the impossible, not only right. gets the deal, but gets the vote. But then. So the next step, this is where like I'm starting to learn new things. The next step in legislation, usually a very uncontroversial one is let's pass a schedule, right? This is really just like a calendar <laughs> item. Like, all right, uh, we're going to vote on this piece of legislation this day and we'll read yeah. it and debate it for this amount of time. And we're going to go to that. lunch at 1230 yeah, and we're exactly. all going to get sandwiches. And then, you know, this is this is very housekeeping, right? Right. Because. Uh, Boris Johnson put forth a three-day process for this. Parliament said, that's not enough time for us to understand what's in the legislation we'll be putting forward. And 
They're not wrong. This is a very complex piece of legislation. But one of the reasons Boris Johnson wanted a three-day period is he didn't want to leave a lot of time for people to put in amendments. Yeah. Specifically, there is a movement to add an amendment to the deal, to the legislation, saying this deal and this legislation will only be implemented after it has been approved in a referendum to the public. So basically putting the question of Brexit to the public again. Boris doesn't want to let that possibility happen. So he said, look, it's a three-day schedule. It's not going to leave enough time for any chicanery. We'll just be putting, we'll be enacting the legislation that will enact this. Uh, and he lost that vote. And there, and then paused the debate on the legislation. So now, not only is there not a schedule, but there isn't any more debate about Brexit right now because the prime minister has paused it, and they're debating the Queen's speech. Wait, what? Yeah, well, because Parliament's still in session, so they're like, well, I guess if we're not allowed to do Brexit, uh, what's next on the agenda? The Queen's speech. Okay, great. We'll, we'll get to that. Wait, what do they debate about it? Hey, you know, like, uh, what's going to go into it? What's she going to say? All that kind of stuff. Oh, they determine it? Parliament well, writes I, the Queen's I, speech? You know what? That, that is also at the limits of my understanding. Yeah. I don't think they get to tell the prime minister no. Well, he's got, he's, yeah, he doesn't even have a majority right now, so it is weird. All right, all right, uh, all but, right. But generally what happens with the Queen's speech is the majority party puts forth, like, here's what's going to be in the speech. Parliament gets to look at it and make comments, and then he sure. hands it to the Queen and she reads it. Whatever. They're going to debate how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. Uh the the one comedic part that we missed was something else that happened after the Saturday kerfuffle, and that was the fact that now it seemed uh, uh, that there was no way around it that Boris Johnson, who swore up and down again that England was going to be out of the European Union by October 31st, the spooky Halloween Brexit deadline, he said, uh, using the macabre language of the season, that he would rather be dead in a ditch than have the UK remain in the EU past that date. He was now compelled by law to write to the EU asking for a extension, but he had to figure out a way to do that while still saving space, uh, saving face with the rest of his promises, right? Yes. Uh, so uh, that is that is rightfully a second part of this, because uh, the Letwin Amendment kept the deal from being approved, which kicked in the Ben Act, which meant that he had to send the letter. So what Prime Minister Boris Johnson did was photocopy the text of the letter from the Ben Act, didn't sign it, and then added his own letter saying, I think this is a horrible idea and please don't give us an extension, essentially, and signed that and sent it off to the EU. The EU has said, okay, we're going to all talk about how to react to this request. Because uh, they couldn't say we, we don't, we, we're going to talk about granting it because, well, it's kind of a weird request because it's requesting two things. So right now, Donald Tusk, the president of the EC, has said, uh, we are now asking our member countries if we should grant an extension. So it does seem like the EU is leaning towards reacting by granting an extension. Uh, but any one of the EU member countries, uh, except for the UK, could uh, 
undermine that by saying, no, we don't want to do that. Um, it does seem like they will probably grant an extension. The big question now is whether it will be an extension to January 31st, as requested in the Ben Act letter, the unsigned <laughs> Ben Act yeah. letter, uh, or whether it will be some shorter period of extension. Uh, Boris Johnson has said, if the EU grants us an extension, I'm going to call for an election uh, because he can call for an election in certain circumstances. There's like three different circumstances. It doesn't have to be a no confidence vote. Uh, he could he could just get enough people on board to say, yeah, let's have an election. The earliest an election could happen would be November 28th. The Labor Party doesn't want an election until uh, they've figured out Brexit. So now we're at another impasse here where Boris may call for an election, not get enough MPs to vote for the election. Uh, and at which point, honestly, labor has said, you know, we're we're fine with this deal. We just need to spend some time to get the legislation in, enacted. If Boris Johnson does get an extension from the EU, doesn't get an election called, he's pretty much left trying to fight off amendments to the legislation that might cause a referendum or labor. The remember I mentioned there were two things he wants to fight off. Yeah. The less likely one is labor is talking about adding an amendment to the legislation that would keep the entire UK in the customs union, uh, not just Northern <laughs> Ireland. Also a reminder that the UK has had three plus years to figure this out, right? Like talk about trying to get your homework done five minutes before class starts. <laughs> Well, yeah, because there was there was the day of the referendum. Uh, there was the handing over from David Cameron to Theresa May. Yeah. Then there was time where Theresa May went and negotiated with the EU before she issued the withdrawal notice. There there were months uh, where the e where where the UK had not declared its its intent uh, to withdraw. Once she actually declared the intent, then it was at the time reported as she's got two years. That's all she's got, and then they have to leave. Uh, but there were always room for extension. And there was always room for the UK to change their mind uh, if the EU agreed to it. And the EU has so far at least agreed to the extensions. And here we are. And just to clear things up, if you are unfamiliar with the British parliamentary system or par parliamentary systems in general, they do not go on any kind of set election cycle. They call for elections. And so that is what Boris Johnson yeah, would yeah. threaten to do. Uh, the, the UK has a fixed term parliament act now, which uh, has a has a clock that says after after a parliament has been in session this long, you will have to have an election. Yeah. But you can call an election before that in certain cases, one of them being no confidence, one of them getting get two thirds of the MPs. And then there's some weird one where you can do like a one line thing that means a simple majority. But I'm, I'm not sure what the conditions are. You, have, you have to catch the snitch. Uh, <laughs> I think so. So the Theresa May has tried this once, right? Like, like she tried to call for an election so she could oh, yeah. have more yeah. of a conservative majority in parliament and it hilariously backfired on her. Yeah, she successfully got a, a new election and then uh, went into coalition with the Irish unionists, the DUP. <laughs> Who, as it turns out, is now the biggest sticking point in terms of getting <laughs> any kind of Brexit deal done. And part of that was because hard Brexit people never really trusted Theresa May, right? Uh, yes, it, I, that is certainly part of it, uh, from what I can tell. It was also that the Irish backstop just felt like 
uh, a way to trick the UK into staying in the the, the customs union. Uh, and people said, look, there's no way for us unilaterally to pull out of this. That's not really Brexit. Yeah. So now, uh, uh, <laughs> now once again, even as we find new frontiers in this Brexit journey, we uh, uh, are confused as to where the map leads. If you are to guess, and from paying more attention to experts on this matter, guesswork is literally the height of the profession. Where do we go from here? Who knows? Uh, I I think the EU will grant an extension. Of course it they will. will. What else are they going to well, do? It'll probably be the January 31st extension requested uh, with a provision that if Brexit is agreed to, is passed by the parliament, then they can leave earlier. Yeah. Uh, Theresa May got an extension like that once too, which, which was basically like, you have until this day, uh, to avoid a hard Brexit. And if you if you figure it out before then, great. We don't have to wait till that day for you to exit. I think that's what I think that's your, what you're most likely to get from the EU. Uh, I think Boris Johnson will lose uh, an attempt to to get an election because he and Jeremy Corbyn just met. And uh, it seemed the flavor of that was, I don't want to give you an election until we've avoided a hard Brexit until we've figured all this out from Jeremy Corbyn. Uh, and it seems like Boris Johnson, even though he didn't have a meeting of the minds here, they, they weren't compromising by letting Corbyn even meet with him is at least willing to listen and negotiate there now. Uh, and, and probably what happens is this legislation gets pushed through slower, not in the three day time limit. Uh, and we'll see the battles around whether we get uh, the UK to be kept in the customs union, which I think we'll lose, or whether we get a referendum, which I call that one 50 50. Now, that's uh, that's that's the big key here, because after a three plus year tooth and nail battle, you know, uh, between. Theresa May within her own party and an elections called and all of the pain and sturm and drawing that came from the initial referendum vote, the, the remain leave vote. And now Boris Johnson coming in and, and they're actually being at least politically viable, if certainly not perfect, uh, a Brexit deal in place. And now implementation, the height, the height of comedy to me is that there is a political viability to a do-over. <laughs> that there is still, that this late stage, at four minutes to midnight, there is the, the possibility that there could be one more time Brexit vote two, this time for all the marbles. Yeah, I, I think... It's got a chance. Look, I think the two most likely scenarios are the legislation just gets passed. It just takes longer. And Boris Johnson lose some, loses some face because he doesn't go out on October 31st. But he blames Parliament for that. And OK, we're now we're I mean, and if And if he gets it yeah. done, that's he gets that's it done. that's yeah. the pelt. Then it's right? all water. he gets to be uh, Brexit king forever. I think there's an almost equal possibility that folks say, you know what? Let's bring this to the people. Yes, it would be undemocratic to ask them about Brexit again you know, leave or remain, but now we've got a deal. 
Uh, and there obviously is not like a, you know, an overwhelming uh, wave of, of, of favor for this deal. A lot of people still, you know, all of labor still has a problem with it. Let's ask the people here's now that you know what the deal is. I think that could be politically viable to say, we're not just asking the same question again. We're saying now that you know, so you vote on the deal, deal but is. if, but if you vote no on the deal, what happens then? You have well, to go back and, that's and get where it a gets new sticky, deal, right? Because people are going to say, well, it should be uh, leave, remain or renegotiate, right? Like, <laughs> and, and I think that's where it, it probably ends up not getting passed. But there's a chance that that we get a like deal or no deal uh, referendum out there. And even if that happens, I think leave wins because the UK is tired of this. They want it over. Uh, and yeah, I guess if you, if, if remain wins, then it's also over. But, uh, but you know you're going to have people still fighting for it, and I think the mood in the country is: look, you got the deal, just take the deal. It's just, and it. I, you know, and we'll deal with the consequences later. Because that that is the one thing, and I think we can end here. That across the pond, if I'm going to try to overlay any just like political realities that exist, regardless of borders, right, and regardless of specifics, the biggest carrot that Boris Johnson has right now to MPs is that your entire lives have been subsumed on one level or another by Brexit. Like this has always been uh, an element of anything that you have done. Those days are ending. We are going to move into a new world. Do you want to either have a head start in that and be in the favor of leadership or do you want to be one of these people that will live in the past until their very dying breath and then be behind on anything else they want to do because a new day is dawning that won't have Brexit be the anchor around your neck? And the remain argument is going to be Boris Johnson doesn't even have a majority of his own party right now. Uh, <laughs> he kicked people out, so he doesn't have enough actual conservatives. Uh, Labor can win an election, and by golly, if you're tired of things, think of it this way. This and this is not me talking. This yeah. is what the remainers yeah. will say. Uh, think of it this way. If you vote remain, nothing changes. Everything just stays the way it is, and this is all over, and it was all a bad dream, and, and none of the, the dire predictions will come. But if you vote for this deal, not only are you going to have the disruption of leaving the European Union, customs union, but you're also going to have a Scottish independence vote again. You're there's talk of a Welsh independence vote. Uh, you're going to have people in Northern Ireland that are upset with this deal, uh, that, that are going, it's going to be more turbulent waters ahead unless we just get rid of this whole stupid mess. That's going to be their, that's going to be their pitch. I think. <laughs> I mean, that's, and that is, that's the funniest part is that we come all the way and then it's like, ah, but what if we didn't? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it was a very close. Of course, vote, yeah. Oh know? no, I mean, I think that, there, there will be there will be a political will for that. They'll, they'll certainly. I mean, the, the this is not from out of nowhere. Uh, people were pushing for another referendum under Theresa May, which I think was probably even more likely, but didn't happen. This is why you do two thirds majorities for certain things, because just winning fifty percent doesn't settle the issue often. And here's a great example of that. Yeah. Ah, uh, well. Uh, uh, we will continue to monitor this from our uh, from our our, our our peak vantage point in California across the <laughs> world. 
Uh, Tom, thank you, thank you, thank you so much. Is there anywhere uh, no, that you? Thank you for giving me the chance to 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 talk about this stuff that I I do very much enjoy following. I think it's just on here that you talk about anything political, right? Is there I've, any? I've occasionally tweeted a UK political thing uh, uh, here and there, but yeah, I, I keep it. I keep the politics out of Daily Tech News Show for sure. All right, then at Ace Detect on Twitter, that's where you need to go. Thank you so much, Tom. Politics. Hey, do you want to support this show? You know, we don't have ads. I don't know if you guys have noticed that. There's no ads on this show. We're trying to be all killer, no filler. I'm not trying to sell you some mattress. I'm not trying to let you know that there's some coffee company that filled their director of bean searching in five seconds because of a scam website. The only way that we take support on this show is at TakePoliticsSeriously.com. And here's what we're going to give you. At the $3 level... You get a bonus podcast at the beginning of the week, bonus podcast at the end of the week. It's two more times that when news breaks, you get these hot takes. The analysis, sometimes interviews, uh, uncut interviews, uh, uh, little bonuses. In fact, uh, uh, this week, the the, the faithful, the $3 faithful are going to get a little bonus conversation that Tom and I did about the new Watchmen show that is politics adjacent, but certainly not politics uh, 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 irrelevant. So come on over. Take politicsseriously.com. Also, if you want my newsletter, free political newsletter at freepoliticalnewsletter.com, five days a week, five stories a day, and I'm just telling you right now, it's becoming, this is, what, this is the feedback that I'm getting from you guys. This is becoming a requirement. Like if you just want the digest, if you don't want to deal with all the bombast, if you have left Twitter, if you're not on Facebook anymore, you are, you are not talking to family friends because you know that the storm is coming. An election year in this climate of all climates is coming. The nuclear hurricane that will be 2020. But you do want to be aware of things in a tone and a language that doesn't make you want to murder somebody. Come on over. Free political newsletter at freepoliticalnewsletter.com. Politics. have to tell you friends that this is a segment I've worked hard on but it's something that I have butterflies in my stomach about I'm a little nervous and and you guys know I, I don't I don't get nervous often I, I I try to do things with confidence I try to do things boldly you ain't listening to me yammer on and on if I'm not gonna be sure about what I'm saying or at least I'm saying it with a little conviction But this is the first time that I've ever done anything that I think treads beyond gas bag who is just remarking about the news. Now, I am still just that, but it treads into the realm of actual political (laughs) science, right? That I'm, I'm trying to do from my vantage point outside 
I am trying to reverse engineer the DNA of a campaign. Because this is a campaign that, in my opinion, is probably the only one up till this point that I know for sure campaigns in years and cycles beyond this one will go back and study exactly how in the hell they did what they did. I'm, of course, talking about the Andrew Yang campaign. As we had Dave Leventhal from the Center for Public Integrity on to talk about money a couple weeks ago, last week, actually. He remarked that nobody knew who Andrew Yang was besides his close family and friends a couple months ago. And now he's up on stage trading barbs with sitting senators and former vice presidents. If you just look at that, it's remarkable. But how did he get there? All right. So some of this is going to be me trying to quantify not only who Andrew Yang is from our vantage point looking into the campaign, but what intentionally inside the campaign they are trying to highlight. I'm going to do that. And then there are things that are absolutely objectively actions that are done. And I'm going to try and highlight what I believe are the smartest and why. So before we go any further, I I, I don't want to make this a, oh, this is an invented thing that Andrew Yang's a creation. While every campaign has to highlight the strengths and mitigate the weaknesses of the people that are asking for votes. That's what separates a campaign from just, you know, hanging out. If you're booking interviews and you're buying advertisements and you're speaking to prospective voters, you put time, effort, and thought into doing it. So what exactly are they highlighting? To do that, I'm going to break things down into three different categories. And this, I think, is universal. You can break down campaigns from modern day to back in the day. The best have the clearest answers to three questions. Who are you? What are you doing? Where are you reaching people? And we begin with the first. Who is Andrew Yang? In honor of the fact that uh, Yang actually just sat down with Gene Park, who used to host the Washington Post channel on Twitch. R.I.P. the Washington Post channel on Twitch. I used to really like it. I really like Gene. Now Gene's doing uh, video game stuff for the Washington Post. And he interviewed Andrew Yang about video games. So, in honor of that, I'm going to break things down in terms of metas. Metas are... The, the general strategy, the strategy of the moment. And you need to know the strategy of the moment in a video game if you're playing against other players because you can best take advantage of what they are not expecting or you know what to steer away from if you know what they are going to be guarded against. It is my opinion that we have lived most of our lives in a presidential meta of statesmen. You wanted to project maximum statesmen. 
Now you wanted to be charismatic and you wanted to be a, a, a revolution, but every action that you took had to be mitigated against the idea of would we be embarrassed of this person if they represented us? And this, I feel, led to a lot of very defensive politicking. A lot of, let's not take these chances because they could be negative. I believe that in 2016, this was upset. Donald Trump was not a statesman. Donald Trump was a fighter. I believe that now in this 2020 race and this 2020 Democratic primary, we have three different flavors of fighters. Biden is the fighter who has been there before. You look at it in all of his talking points. It's all about, I beat the NRA. I did this thing. I was there when this happened. He wants to prove a track record of fighting. Bernie Sanders is... I fought this fight forever, and now I am going to be the the only one who will truly fight for an upending of our entire economic system. Elizabeth Warren is that, but slightly different. I don't believe that Andrew Yang is playing a fighter's meta, and I think that subconsciously it has allowed him to stick out. And I'll explain why. Andrew Yang is not a statesman. He comes out to return to the Mac and dances. Andrew Yang is not a fighter. He hasn't even come out and said that Donald Trump is somebody that is awful and dumb and evil. Andrew Yang is a prophet. Now, he won't say that, but I think that this is the the general idea of his message. His message is, I'm the frightened scientist in the first 10 minutes of the disaster movie. And you might laugh at me, you might dismiss me, but trust me, by the end of the first act, everyone will be coming to me for answers. Think about this. What do you know about Andrew Yang? He's Silicon Valley guy, young entrepreneur. He is explaining your economic anxiety, not because he's done some studies, not because he's been inside government. It's because he sees the reason why we are going to go through this gigantic economic upheaval through the strategy of his friends' companies. He's not there to fight the enemy. He is not there to maintain the country. He is there to try to bring a solution to an oncoming economic upheaval. His answer to that and the signature of his campaign is the freedom dividend. But he can't be just another politician. This is the defining element about him. If he gets in to politician speak, then he is going to be in trouble. So... He has quotes like this. By the way, to make sure that we're getting the most recent examples of the campaign strategy, we are going to be pulling all of our quotes from an interview that he did earlier this week with the Washington Post. Let's say you don't win the nomination. You have said early on in this interview you would support the Democratic nominee. Would you be open to serving on the Democratic ticket? 
Of course. Uh, I'm not someone who's had some crazy native desire to be president of the United States since I was a kid, because I'm not insane. <laughs> you know, uh, like uh, I'm... Regular guy, smart, has a plan because he sees an oncoming disaster. That is who Andrew Yang is. And every time that he gets in front of a camera or is on a debate stage or is in front of a crowd, these are the things that they want to highlight intrinsically. So, what is Andrew Yang doing to become president? Well, he's trying to answer questions that are coming up in your own head. Universal basic income, if you're unaware, is $1,000 a month from the government in your bank account for every American citizen over the age of 18. It, quite simply, is giving money directly from the government to you. A giveaway of cash, $12,000 a year to every American citizen. In a way, it kind of sounds like bribery. <laughs> Vote for me, I'll give you $12,000 every year until the day you die. The first thing that anybody rightly would think of is this is the most audacious, progressive, socialist program that I have ever heard in my entire life. Now, Andrew Yang doesn't want to run as a socialist. In fact, he doesn't really want to run as a capital P progressive. So he's got to answer that. How does he do it without saying, I'm not a socialist and I'm not a progressive? He can do things that violate the orthodoxies of those disciplines. Specifically, something that you very rarely hear Democrats do, let alone progressives, Democrats writ large. And that is, specifically if he's pitching a gigantic program, to criticize other big government programs as being waste of money and totally futile. Here is an example. One of the big ways that Democrats have pushed for the last 10 or so years when hit with what are you going to do about manufacturing jobs is, look, manufacturing jobs are going away. And that means that you need to be retrained to do something else. And don't worry, we got a program for that. This is Andrew Yang attacking the idea that any of these programs are effective. Because we, as uh, the shareholders of the economy, decide to put our money to work, not because the government decides to institute a top-down jobs training program that oftentimes would not work. And we know this because of what happened to the manufacturing workers in the Midwest. When I dug into what happened here, Let's say that I'm a government program. I'm like, okay, I got to retrain these thousands of manufacturing workers. Let's say there's not even a, an appropriate school in the area, which is sometimes the case. You know what happens? Some fly-by-night school opens the next day and is like, give me your money, government. Um, I will retrain everyone. And then that fly-by-night school gives everyone a certificate and then closes as soon as the retraining's done. If I'm the government official, I check the box and say, hey, everyone was retrained. If I'm the school, I no longer exist, but my shareholders have money. And you know who suffers? All the people who now have a valueless certificate. Now, this is where we kind of get into a conflict of the profit versus statesman, or even profit versus fighter. Because Andrew Yang doesn't really care if he sounds like a Republican here. Usually it's Republicans that are the ones that are talking about how the government programs are poorly run and they're wastes of money and they're not getting us anywhere. But he doesn't really care. 
a fighter cares because whether or not that program was effective, at least it was going in the right direction. It was trying to solve problems the way that we want to solve problems. And that is the government taking care of it. A statesman would never say that if they were a Democrat, because God forbid they were to piss somebody off that wrote that legislation. But Yang doesn't care. Yang's the frightened scientist. He's just saying this can't keep happening. This needs to stop. But also, he has to maintain his humanity. Remember, he can't sound too much like a politician or else he loses some of his charm. So even when Yang is doing politician-y things, this right here, this clip I'm about to play you, might be the most cliched politician thing ever that ever happens on a campaign trail. In fact, I was trying my best to find, there's a great David Cross bit where he's making fun of exactly this trope. Uh, and, and this is, of course, the like, when I was in Iowa, I met, and this is the David Cross joke, I met a woman who was so poor she had to eat her own eyeballs. Yang modifies this idea in a very smart way, in my opinion. Instead of this just being an empty story that for all we know is real, but is probably not because, you know, whatever. It's just another campaign story. It's either something fabricated or it's, you know, look, a bunch of people that are there at your rally are going to say nice things about you and they're going to parrot your talking points, blah, blah, blah. Yang modifies it like this. Yang is trying to prove the freedom dividend by currently giving a bunch of families $1,000 a month right now just to see how it affects them and to prove the concept that getting $1,000 a month is a good thing. So he's able to tell this story. I've been giving families around the country $1,000 a month for months now. It's a lot of fun. I recommend it if anyone wants to. Uh, uh, but one of the recipients is a guy named Kyle Christensen who lives in Iowa Falls with his mom who's recovering from cancer. And I saw Kyle on one of my last trips to Iowa and he seemed like a different man. He's, he was beaming. And he said he'd use some of the money to buy a new guitar for himself and was playing shows for the first time in years. And he was so proud as he was telling me this. Now what government program would have ever put Kyle in position to buy himself a guitar? For him it was a guitar. For Jody Fassi in New Hampshire it was car repairs. Uh, for Mallory Shannon in Florida was going back to school. But we Americans know how best to solve our own problems and $1,000 a month would help us all move forward. Again, this is the hackiest thing a politician can possibly do. But for Yang, it works. Why? Because he's not just talking to people and saying, I will fix your problem if you vote for me. He's talking about people that he has already helped. Because again, he is the prophet. He knows that the wave is coming and he wants to get you out and evacuated now. In a world of when I get to Washington, he wants to be active. However, this is all, I don't know, rhetoric. This is presentation. Let's get into the stuff that I love the most. And that is the actual X's and O's of a campaign. To me, the legacy of the Andrew Yang campaign will be 
that from zero, he had to figure out a way to claw his way into the mainstream of this Democratic primary. And he understood that the only way to do it was to continually make the debates. The debates in this 2020 Democratic primary have been the legitimacy circle. If you're in it, people still care about you. Even if they think that you might drop out, even if they think that you don't have a shot, if you're still there, you matter. If you're not, you don't. And that gets us to our third category. Where is Andrew Yang reaching people? In the book Devil's Bargain, Steve Bannon is alleged to have had a revelation while working with a company that was effectively a way that you could buy things within the economy of the World of Warcraft, the Blizzard game. It was in paying attention to those forums that he realized that there were disaffected young men and that very often in the echo chamber of the internet, it was their wishes, desires, and hatreds that were over-catered to and over-reported. This led him to figuring out that there was a political future in catering to an online community. And he eventually goes on to do Breitbart. Now, for whatever you think of Steve Bannon, I do think that this was a very astute discovery. And there is zero argument to be made that Andrew Yang launched his campaign by speaking to disaffected young men online. The interview that put him on the the map was the Joe Rogan podcast. Joe Rogan is the Oprah for disaffected young men online. Yang speaks openly about the fact that when men feel directionless, without jobs, unable to provide, unable to buy a house, unable to have kids, that they don't react well. Now, the most simplistic way to criticize this way of thinking is to say, okay, well, then you're just going to give a bunch of lazy bums who want to live in their parents' basements forever a bunch of money. They're just going to spend it on dumb stuff. But I think that the thing that resonated, and again, this isn't the entire Yang campaign, but I'm talking about where he initially looked for an audience. Because the only way that you have a, a massive house party is if you have a loud house party already. And then more people are attracted to it. And this was the initial audience. His pitch to disaffected young men online was simple and primal. What if you didn't have this boot on your throat? That's where he starts to get traction. What if you were able to buy a house easier? Would you feel more comfortable in your relationship? Would you not feel so impotent when you weren't able to make the bills that you and your girlfriend have? Did you feel better if you were able to take her out on a date? Would you feel better if you were more secure in sending your kid to a private school that your wife really, really wants your kid to go to? This is something that I believe resonated immediately. This is probably the most impressive initial strategic move that Andrew Yang's campaign made. 
Now, that's not everything, because I think he evolves it from there. But once he proves that this is a concept that works with one community, I think that he can continue to go forward. And part of that is distancing himself a little bit from that initial idea. In fact, I don't think, I, I think that probably Yang fans now would, would listen to something like that and say, well, that's not all he's about. I'm not saying it's what he's all he's about. I mean, hell, if he were all about that, he certainly wouldn't have come out against porn as he did online because I'll tell you what disaffected young men online like a lot. That's some porn. But now that he'd successfully identified that financial insecurity is a primal desire that he is directly trying to fix. Because that's, I mean, look, even his his slogan, you know, this is like the the the, the Andrew Yang question that you should ask everybody. This is this is the, the the proselytizing question from Yang Gang people. This is their uh, uh have you heard the good news? Jesus is coming, right? What would you do with $1000 a month? And that taps right into that idea. Because he's not saying, don't worry, with an intricate Rube Goldberg set of government programs, everything's going to be great. And he's not saying what Bernie and Warren are saying, which is we're going to overturn the entire economic society, but don't worry, when the dust is settled, it'll be great. He's saying something far simpler. What would you do with $1,000 a month? And doing it online meant that he was able to collect those audiences. He's got a very powerful Facebook. He's got a very powerful Reddit. He's got a very powerful Twitter. His Facebook and his Reddit from the earliest moments, this is before a lot of the mainstream uh, press was even paying attention to him. He was very early on, very early on, talking to them about how many unique donors they needed to make the debates and how much money their goals were to raise. Now, that is not necessarily unique, but Andrew Yang's campaign has never reeked of give me money now desperation. Unlike Cory Booker, who said if he didn't raise a million dollars in 48 hours that he was going to drop out. Unlike Julian Castro, who's currently saying that if he doesn't raise $800,000 by Halloween, he's going to drop out. The way that Yang was able to avoid this fate was by very early on explaining that this was a challenge we could all get behind. You can put somebody up on a debate stage. Primal need, a simple plan. Organizing the communities online with something that was very, very engaging. And it very much helps that the community that he was gathering is a native audience. A podcast crowd is digitally savvy. And that is something that I very much believe from the top down. The fact that Andrew Yang is tech savvy, the fact that Andrew Yang can speak the language of the internet is a gigantic, gigantic advantage. Specifically on Twitter, where we just saw in 2016, if you make enough noise on Twitter, Eventually, your fans will start tagging reporters, they'll start tagging outlets, and you will be paid attention to. Because the media lives on Twitter.
They get paid by old media to break all their stories on a website that they can't monetize. What a country. But the days of Andrew Yang feel-good upstart are pretty much at an end. And I think that they damn well know it. He's out of coupons for people that have been paying attention to him for a little while to simply just talk about UBI. He's got to continue to expand. And part of that is drawing voters from other top-tier candidates. The rarer the air he gets to, the more he's going to have to explain exactly why he's different. Now, this is an inherent class challenge if he is running as a prophet and not a fighter. Fighters are easy. Fighters are born to fight. You fight with the other candidate. The other candidate fights back. You win the fight. You can uh, identify yourself as a strong candidate to persuadable voters from the other camp. Yang's got to be careful with this, but he has shown more teeth lately. Well, number one, Senator Warren uh, does not seem to think that automation and the fourth industrial revolution uh, uh, represent a problem. Um, she believes that bad trade deals were the primary driver of the lost four million manufacturing jobs, uh, and that if we change the rules, then the economy will uh, reformat itself in positive ways. I think we're going through the greatest transformation in the history of our country. Yang's coalition, best I can tell, are working class men, coastal millennial Democrats, and the most disproportionately important group in politics, hardcore social media users. He obviously needs to continue to bring his message to other groups. And this, I think, is ultimately part of the reason why there might simply be a ceiling on how much he can grow. But the fact that he has captured the attention of these very valuable groups in the way that he has with the passion that he has them exhibiting is again, to me, worth studying. I genuinely would like to congratulate Andrew Yang. Wherever he goes from here, I, I want to congratulate Andrew Yang and his campaign manager, Zach Grauman, because the more I dug into this, the more I looked at it, and the more I followed it, the more impressed I have been. And that is the campaign playbook of Andrew Yang. I want to hear who you guys want me to uh, uh, do next, because I would love to do more deep dives into this. Uh, this is kind of a different version of the how they win, how they lose segment that I've done. I can't really do a how they win, how they lose segment with Andrew Yang where I go through all the old elections because that dude ain't been in other elections. All right, that'll bring us to the end of our show today. I want to thank our $10 tier D-Laser, Andy, Paul, Mike, and Brad. I would like to uh, encourage everybody, hey, uh, let me know. If, what, what, what more do you want me to cover? TheYoungAmerican at gmail.com. Again, TheYoungAmerican at gmail.com. I want to thank Valesco and Trop Killers for bringing us our music. And you can follow me at Justin R. Young everywhere. Heads up. We're changing the schedule of when we release this. We have been doing interview episodes on Tuesday and the more one mic shows on Wednesday. But then I surveyed you guys on what you like about the show, and we've been evolving the show to kind of meet that, and that's meant that 
Now, both shows kind of have a little bit of interview, a little bit of fun commentary, and every time I speak to you, you guys are getting at least some kind of this is how we can explain the news of the day. So, considering the fact, and if you guys listened to yesterday's show and today's show, it's kind of two different versions that have only evolved by 24 hours. Thank God we had a great 24 hours and we were able to evolve it enough that it was different. But I want to spread them out a little bit. So, from here on out, we are still going to release an episode on Wednesday, the way that you've always come to know and love. But now, we're going to release our Tuesday episode on Friday. So the new schedule is Wednesday and Friday for our free feed. And the Friday episode is hopefully going to have a little bit more of a meaty, learn something evergreen kind of interview in there. So it doesn't really matter if you listen to it over the weekend or on your Monday commute, whatever it is, that's going to be there. That means that for our $3 club, you are going to get Monday and Thursday mini bonus episodes. And that's it. All right. Uh, uh, if, if any of y'all are at Politicon in Nashville, I will see you there. Otherwise, friends, come on. Follow me at Justin R. Young. Go ahead and join my Discord. Bit.ly slash jury discord. A reminder, the politics has three names, and some shows talk about politics, others talk about politics, and still more talk about politics, but this is the only show that talks about all three! Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs>